as I was putting this message together, and I, and I give her the outline on, on uh, Friday by about noontime. She's very gracious of that, too. But anyway, um, it just seemed that one section of this kept expanding. Um, and I'll just say it like this. What we've talked about several times is that this particular passage, there's layers to this. Uh, some of which is because uh, Paul has been just so detailed in what he said about the scriptures, but then also in all the different things that are related to false teaching. And so what I've wanted to do is just, and we can't hit it all in one message, we can't hit it just in two messages, but I'm trying to do it in somewhat of a logical fashion. And so as I was putting this together, I have several things that we will be looking at, uh, some of which will be next week. But uh, this week's, like I say, just kind of expanded. And part of it is putting some of the, the, the flesh on the bones, so to speak, helping us understand exactly what this controversy is, and then really trying to give some practical things in relation to this. And so uh, we've looked at the big picture of things thus far. We've talked about uh, false teachers uh, recently we we looked at just you know their character and different things like that and and so right now it's it's not even just so much about the false teachers themselves but what does that mean to us how are we going to be dealing with this and so that is really what I want us to be looking at uh, this morning and it's just going to take some time to do it including some consideration of just kind of what's in our world today you know we can look at, at um, um, the passage, and I'm, I'm not, you know, telling you in advance. We're going to be reading the passage in a minute. You've already heard this, but there's talks about, you know, Sabbaths and new moons and things like that. And it's like, I don't know that we celebrate a new moon, right? You know, so some of those things aren't necessarily immediately relevant to us, but it's the meaning behind it. It's, it's the issues that these people were dealing with, and we have some similarities today. So again, this is just another layer that we're going to be looking at. And so turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. I'll be reading this, this whole portion to you this morning uh, as far as 16 through, uh, through 19 here. But um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to read down through the end of the, of the, of the chapter. But again, we're not going to be dealing with all of it right now. So let's start in verse 16, and then I'll read down through. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase, which is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. <clears throat> so as we, again, consider what we're talking about here, what I want us to do, again, is to examine this passage 
and mostly look at it from the aspect of how does this apply to our living today. The first point that you have is an invalid practice. And like I say, don't worry about the ones after that. In my outline, you'll have some other points to fill in. An invalid practice. Religious activity apart from the truth of the word has no spiritual substance. It doesn't have any lasting value. And Colossians gives us several specific elements of false teachers' counterfeit doctrines. It's really an outline for anything that we can, a template, so to speak, that we can overlay with anything that we hear and say, okay, does it hit one of these points? Again, we're looking more at generalities here, not specifics. So one of the things that we've talked about recently is asceticism. And I know I've talked about it, but we're going to look at it in a little bit different angle today. So 16, verse 16, lists the dietary requirements false teachers placed on their followers, right? You saw that there. Paul actually quotes in verse 21 what is believed to be a common saying of this group, and I'll just repeat it for you. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You've probably seen your scriptures. There's quotes around that. So this was one of the things that, that um, you know, we, we, ha- we have our uh, uh, pet phrases too, right? But this was one of their pet phrases. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. And after a while, you can kind of hum along with it, right? And that, that was something that they did uh, uh, habitually, to kind of almost like a mantra to to have people follow along with what they believed. Now, there are several branches within the larger scope of Protestantism that practice different forms of asceticism. All right? Asceticism, again, doing without. Doing without for the purpose of of having a, a, a basically being better spiritually. Okay? So we think of the Amish or the Mennonites. There's some obvious examples. Each group has what's called ordnung or orders, which are extra-biblical standards. Many communities within these uh, groups, they forbid modern conveniences, fancy clothing, cars, etc. And many of you know about that. But we also have another group that are called the apostolics. A particular group of them, but a large group of them, uh, add standards primarily for women regarding hair and dress and makeup. Uh, there's a certain way that you have to present yourself in order to uh, be doing the right things. We also need to identify something that we call fundamentalism. Now, I'm not speaking of uh, the fundamentals of the faith, the things that we hold to. That fundamental basically means basic, right? Those, those foundational principles. But fundamentalism is a group within even Baptists and others who have a set of rules stacked on Scripture about hair length, going to movies, type of music you listen to, Bible versions, and we could probably go on and on with that list. They often overlay... I'm sorry, overly stress the free will of man and promote what might be labeled an easy believism. So it tends to be more of a human-focused, works-based type of lifestyle. 
And another word that we can use for that is what? Legalism, right? Now, there's a legalism that says you have to do these things in order to be saved. Then there's a legalism that says you have to do these extra biblical things in order to be right. All right? You're not going to really find them in Scripture. They're going to be kind of pulled out of Scripture, and they're going to be stacked up alongside of Scripture. And if you, if you do this, then, then you're worthy. Then you have achieved. Now, my purpose is not to thump our chest and criticize others and talk about how superior we are. We probably actually have our own extra-biblical standards, whether it be in our church or in our home, right? Conservative dress, being careful of what we watch, different things like that are good. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with having a preference of what Bible version you might want to use. Nothing wrong in those things. We know that we are commanded to lead a holy life, and that means that we are to live a life separate from sin. That's going to take some standards, right? But we're supposed to derive them from the Scriptures. The problem is when standards added to the Bible determine our spirituality. That's really the problem. We actually touched on this when we were talking about circumcision and how Gentile believers were pressured to take on Jewish requirements. Again, we know that part of the issue in Colossae was related to Judaism. It was a mix. There was more than one belief that was actually swirling around in this, but that was one of them. The truth is that false teachers often push forms of self-denial that become their measure of true spirituality. So how can we identify and mark off this issue, when we're talking about an invalid practice, it's when rules above and beyond the scripture are heaped on that are required in order for you to measure up. The problem is, is that the artificial standards can either diminish, contradict, or replace Christ and the word of God. And that is exactly what Paul is warning about in this passage. That's why he spent so much time telling us about the wonder and amazement of who Jesus is. About the truth that he not only is God, but he's also the God-man that came and he died on the cross for us and rose again. Amen. Often they use artificial rules and standards to manipulate and control. So I want to make one more point about asceticism. Some people love to be told what to do rather than their right, uh, exercising their rightful responsibilities over their own spiritual walk. We need to be honest with ourselves, right? How much easier is it to have someone list your do's and don'ts and then just check off the boxes, Right? We've got to be careful of that because that can become an artificial standard. Now, I'm not saying that this would necessarily take place within our church, but it could come from without. And one of the things that we said was is that false teachers do what? They can come from within, but they can also influence from without. The next area I think that is, is mentioned here, and again, I'm giving more of a general idea of some of these points, but is traditionalism. 
We see examples of traditions listed in verse 16, a festival, a new moon, or, or Sabbaths. The origin of these were in Judaism, as was pointed out in the past, but other ancient religions observed uh, similar things. They observed feast days. They observed uh, special um, uh, times around the cycle of the moon. And so this wasn't necessarily something that was purely Jewish. And this is what kind of separated this, this teaching from pure Judaism. Again, Paul addressed another church about falling back into all of the Jewish requirements and missing out on the grace that God has given to us. He didn't speak to them exactly that way here. And so there was definitely a mix. There was a problem. But the problem, again, is requiring Christian observance, right? Christians to observe these things. It wasn't right. It wasn't something that was supposed to be laid on the believer. But just like personal standards, traditions aren't necessarily bad. And I don't want to leave an impression or have someone leave this place thinking that somehow, for example, a, a family tradition that you have is, is, is bad to do or wrong. And so I, I'm not referring to anything like that. We're talking about those things where uh, uh, traditionalism becomes a replacement for following the Lord. Here's a good example. The Corinthian church. They actually uh, were falling into traditionalism as they already had lost sight of what the Lord's table was really all about. Think about that for a minute. They met. They met regularly to have this feast and observe the Lord's table. But what was happening? It was chaotic and really had nothing to do with why they were actually meeting. It became, even though they were a young church and everything, it had become a tradition. It just becomes something to do. And so then the tradition itself of, I, I don't understand this, we can't put our mind around this, but basically partying, right? Seeing who could outdo one another, having separation from the poor, where, where the rich were, were having all of these, you know, a gourmet meal and really yucking it up and all the other kind of stuff, right? It, it became all these different things and everybody missed out. Everybody missed out on what was really intended, and so it's really a microcosm of what we're talking about when we're, when we're dealing with traditionalism. The next area that I want us to, uh, and we're going to spend some time on this one. I think this is one of the biggest problems that we have in our country today. And by the way, you come up to me and you can say, I'll give you some examples of asceticism. I'll give you some examples of traditionalism. And I, you know, I'd be like, yes, uh-huh, right. I, I probably would agree with you. It can only fit so much in here. But this area of sensationalism, I really want to push a little harder on because I think it's an issue that we face. The passage, again, we're, we're linking ourselves back to the passage as we've done the last two points, talks about, in verse 18, the worship of angels. This element is pivotal to the Colossian heresy, and here is where it breaks from purely Jewish standards. We know that as far as the, the traditions were concerned, they could have been shared. This one was different. These beliefs would have become formalized eventually into what we know as Gnosticism. It wasn't Gnosticism that they were dealing with now, but you know they use a fancy word they call it proto-Gnosticism. It just means that these are beliefs that were around before it actually got formalized, right? 
But Gnosticism is a belief that we can achieve a higher spiritual plane through various means, one of them being asceticism, right? But then there's also this element of sensationalism. Some have called the Colossian heresy, as I said, an early form of it. But this belief promises higher or secret knowledge being unlocked through greater spirituality. So here is how the angel worship is connected to their beliefs. They believe that there was an order and authority in the spirit world. So there was an order to the spirit world. Now, by the way, do we believe that there's an orderliness to angels? Yeah, we, we do. God tells them what to do. They know what to do. And, and there, there is an orderliness to them. In their minds, God would be a mysterious, unreachable deity uh, too high for them to actually have a relationship with. But conveniently, there were what were called emanations. From lesser spirit beings, they were called aeons, who directly ruled over people and interacted with them. So let's just picture this for a minute. You have, and they use a different name for him, but again, they're trying to mix this with Christianity. You have God himself, who is just too wonderful for us. He, he cannot really be reached. But there's these emanations of other lesser gods that are out there that interact with us. And as we interact with them, we get a sense of right what's what's God is all about and who he is and these other different things, and we gain knowledge. So what they believed was is that with more self-sacrificing or ascetic living, right? that's how we talked about this, these lesser gods would be pleased with us and would rise, and we would rise up through the ranks, increasing our spirituality. That was the idea. They would teach that Christ himself was one of these aeons, one of these emanations, who took on flesh to teach mankind gnosis, or the secret language. I said language, sorry. Knowledge. I don't know where that came from. So here's the idea. Jesus is what? One of many gods. And he has to be a lesser god because he's interacting with us. The, the, the real, big, important god can't interact with us. What does John 1 tell us? Yeah. And what did he do? Came to earth. Right? Wow. So we've got a serious problem. Here's what's interesting. We're talking about angels, right? Talking about angel worship. That's what it says here. Revelation 18.10. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him, but the angel said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Look at these exclamation points. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What did this supposed emanation do using their terminology immediately he pointed john's direction to god not to himself he was just literally the messenger by the way that's what angel means right he was just the messenger he was just a servant just like john angelic yes but still just a messenger 
couple chapters later, Revelation 22. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Folks, here's one, a couple of things we need to take away from this. This is the Apostle John. You with me? This is John. This is the beloved one. He wrote John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was given, what's the title of Revelation? The Revelation of Jesus Christ? Twice. Twice. He's overwhelmed by a literal angel and begins to try to worship him. And what do the angels do? Stop doing that. Right? So we have two lessons here. One is that angels do not receive worship. God's angels. The second lesson is, man, John got caught up in it. What a warning, folks. Therefore, these false teachers are either involved in demonic activity, mystical experiences, or these visions are simply made up by them. Verse 18 also says, Intruding into those things which he has not seen. Many commentators on this verse say that this is kind of a difficult passage to interpret. It's just some language that Paul used that's, that's hard to understand. Um, but this is another reference to worshiping angels. Many agree that the word not there, as in those things which he has not seen, was probably added by an overzealous scribe. It's one of those few places where there's quite a bit of, of um, real conservative um, understanding that somebody might have just popped that in there. And, and there's a reason for that. The truth is Paul isn't validating that they have seen anything. So the negative isn't necessary. He's just saying this is what, they're, this is what they say that they're all about. Now, I've studied this text, I've read a number of commentaries, and I've compared translations to try to understand this phrase. First thing is intruding literally means to step into. Okay? So with that in mind, let me just give you my best explanation. False, the false teacher claims he has gone into the spiritual realm and shares what he claims he has experienced to others. Right? So he has intruded, he has stepped into the spiritual realm, and whatever he's experiencing, he then turns around and tells other people about it. Now again, we're talking about false teachers. So either what he is seeing is demonic, or some mystical experience that he has conjured up, all right, or he just making stuff up. So is there any surprise that people might be captivated by this? Right? I mean, this is sensational. So how does sensationalism affect us? Now, we need to be honest. Something that seems new or exciting or insightful can attract us. Right? That's how they sell books. I think the scene in the Garden of Eden right before man fell, is extremely insightful from the biblical standpoint. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. 
Genesis 3. It's the first book in your Bible, third chapter in. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 10. There's obviously more to the narrative, but this is where we're going to keep our focus this morning. The scene is the Garden of Eden. The scene is a pre-fall condition at this point with Adam and Eve. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. It's a familiar story, but it's very relevant to our study. First question. Where was Eve? There's nothing in the text to indicate that Eve was called over to the tree to be tempted or that uh, she was um, tempted simply by thinking about the tree. I understand that we can't determine what we believe based upon what the Bible doesn't say, okay? That's a huge rule of mine, a huge rule of, of anybody who's serious about studying the scriptures. But this is a little different. It has nothing to do with doctrine or how we practically live out the Christian life. But based upon what we can actually observe, there is every indication that Eve was very close to the tree, perhaps gazing upon it. She considered it. There's no language here that she moved. Serpent talked with her. She answered him back. He lied, and she sat there and observed what I believe the tree. Because she simply took of the fruit and ate of it. Here's the next question. Where was Adam? What do the scriptures say here? And she gave to her husband who was with her. Now, folks, I don't want to get into this too much, but I would call Eve the first guinea pig. Adam knew the truth. Eve was given what she said by either Adam or God. But Adam was told. And Adam watched to see what would happen to his wife. Sorry, guys, that was not our shining moment. And then that is why the scriptures tell us he willfully fell. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully fell. Let 
So the serpent tempted Eve with a better spiritual experience than what God had given them. Folks, this is the Garden of Eden. This is the pre-fallen state. We had better watch ourselves. Isn't that what we're told to do? We've already looked at John. John got overcome with the glory of angels. Here's Adam and Eve. The original sin was, there's got to be something more than perfection. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's what, that's what they, they said. There has to be something more than an unbroken relationship with the God who created me. Wow. By the way, we were all represented there. So I want to give a few examples of what I consider to be sensationalism in our time. We might not consider them in great detail today, but I want to note them enough. The first one is false interpretations of Scripture. Often a false teacher has some unique take on the Scriptures by claiming a deeper insight or a higher knowledge. Others might say that they had something directly revealed to them. I don't want to take an off-ramp here and jump into a whole bunch of examples. But folks, there are some really bizarre and outlandish interpretations out there. And there are people that follow those. The scriptures tell us that they use slick words. That they use good-sounding arguments. And those things are all to entice people into a whole false biblical system. I'm sorry, spiritual system. An alternative to what the scriptures would have us follow. And then we have supernatural experiences. Let me just say something just in general. Um, in my former experience, at least one time, I think maybe at least two times, People have begun their relationship with the church with um, some type of supernatural experience that you can't question, so to speak, right? God did something for them. He showed them something. And so therefore, boom, that's who I am. And it's tough to question experience, isn't it? Except that we have the word. But those people went on to cause some significant damage. So the first example I'm going to give you is actually, I'm just going to be frank, it's quite silly. But it's, one, it's not only uh, a supernatural type of thing, but I think you can also say that it's kind of an uh, interpretive issue too. So this is a post that I got off the internet. In this post, we are talking about the Bible meaning of Five, five, five. Let's make some fundamental considerations. Biblical numbers are those numbers that are known to have a symbolic value in the biblical text. They are a complex and interrelated system of numerology that exhibits a definite pattern. Most times, these numbers appear before you when the angels are trying to communicate a message to you. Well, this is really close to our study, isn't it? Angels are known to communicate through numbers, and the repeated appearance of a certain number is called an angel number. 
Angel numbers can be a single digit number such as five or a sequence of two or more prime numbers such as 55, 555 or 5,555 in case you didn't get that 5555, okay? Yeah, I'm going to be snarky. I'm sorry. They can also be a combination of two or more prime numbers such as 51, 15, 511 or 511. Five. Now, I was a little bit offended because my favorite is 5511. That wasn't even included. Anyway. Or even a mix of two or more numbers, such as, now hang on, this is deep revelation. One, two, three, four. Four, six, five, seven. You see what he did there? Right? Hang on. And so on. Angels want to help you. Angel numbers have a lot of significance as the angels are always trying to guide you to a path of success. Oh, now, I'm, I'm joking around here, but come on, folks. Think about it for a minute. The hook. Successful. Successful spiritually. Successful in other ways, right? Numbers can unlock that for you. These numbers may mean that the angel is warning you, guiding you, helping you, or simply wants to show their presence to let you know that the divine world is around you to help you in need. Do you notice that there's a lot of you in here? You may see a certain number appear before you repeatedly. For instance, you may notice the number 555 in a phone number. Really helps if you're in that area code, right, in that exchange. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. That, is, that has just been shared with you. Or on the license plate of a passing car. Or on the door of a hotel room you are staying in. Or the retail bill you have just paid. Or even the clock might show 555. Sorry, 999. Okay? That was me. These repeated numbers are signs from your guardian angel. And most times, numerology is used to interpret the message sent by your guardian angel. But they may be explained using the Bible as well. By the way, that was the only time <laughs> that the Bible was mentioned. Understanding 555 biblical meanings can have a significant impact on your life. Folks, you know, we're laughing at this. I'm telling you, there are people that believe that when they look in front of them and the license plate says, whatever you want to think of it as, right, that was just a message. Maybe not even from Israel, maybe from God himself. That when the clock strikes a certain number, it helps if it's digital, right? Then that is a message to you. And certain things, certain numbers mean specifically certain things. Like this one is a warning. And this one is uh, about, you know, you did something wrong. And this one is you ought to do something right and all those other things. So you start to look all over the place for the numbers. Ooh, it's 11.53. It's getting late. I better keep going. Uh, you see what I'm saying? I mean, of course, that wasn't a sign from an angel, but anyway, we're going to move on. Another sensational uh, aspect that we can look at, and again, this is pretty easy, but I think it's instructive, is Mormonism. A man gives a fantastical story of an angel, Right? giving him extra information that no one else had. 
Of course, it was given to him on golden tablets, which somehow conveniently got lost. And this made-up religion includes a number of rules to live by, and they have their own traditions. See how these things fit together? I could go on, but none of what Joseph Smith experienced could be verified. It was simply visions, experiences, things that he saw. He stepped into that realm and came back out and told other people, and they said, yeah, I love it. It's just that simple. just want to make a quick note to be warned about the stories of people coming back from the dead and seeing heaven and giving us contradictory information about who God is and what we have revealed in the word. But those are exciting. Somebody died on the operating table and they saw things and they came back to tell us. Another area is the overemphasis on end times. Our emphasis should be on being ready, not on trying to figure out how God is working. We are told to be prepared for his coming, but I don't know of one instruction, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that goes beyond observing signs or indicators that are already given to us in Scripture. Some teachers make their business, and I want to stress that, business out of having the latest and greatest information about world events or Jewish plans to build the temple and on and on it goes. This could include conspiracy theories. I have heard and read professing Christians attempt to link the government or a secret elite class or even aliens to all kinds of end time events. Our government just explored this area of UFOs or whatever they call it now. Um, and I, I didn't watch the proceedings and things. My understanding is, is that the government's saying uh, they're, they're from here. But regardless of that, uh, I happened to be in the car and heard a Christian talk show and heard people talk about how there is this thing going on in conjunction with aliens to do stuff in the world, Right? Now, I don't want to, you know, bust anybody's, I don't know, cosmic bubble. But just the physical, the physical things that it would take for some being somewhere outside of our solar system to get here would be one thing. Then, how they keep themselves a secret, I don't understand. Because we know, we know when, when rain is falling heavy, right? And we can't figure out. If there's something floating around. And then there's, you know, things like physics, things like that. That. So again, I, I don't want to come off being smart. But God said that he made a world. And he filled it with all kinds of amazing creatures. And then he put us here. And he gave us his image distinct from any and every other living being. Amen. And then he said, it was very good. Right. If 
there was a conspiracy by some other beings that live outside of this planet, it wouldn't be a conspiracy because God would have already told us they existed. But I'm telling you, there's people that believe this stuff. Some believe that no, that one or more of these groups are presently behind a plot to persecute Christians. Uh, folks, I, I just remembered this. People have been talking about secret government concentration camps for Christians back since the Clinton administration. We're, we're still here. You see where I'm going with that? I can't prove they don't exist. Maybe they do. But we're still here. I don't believe that we're supposed to be caught up in all the events. It takes ourselves, our emphasis, our focus off of Jesus. So what is the common denominator of all these sensational things? It's new, it's better, or it's secret information. And let's also be transparent about something. Because I, I will admit, I have fallen into this. If I have some information that's new or exciting or a little more insightful, maybe when I tell somebody about Jesus, I can kind of slip that in there and they'll be even more convinced, right? I, I can go above and beyond the Bible and show them something that, oh, see, you just gave me that, oh, I'm in, right? Can I tell you that back in the 1970s, there was a man named Jack Van Impey? Some of you maybe have heard of him, some of you who haven't, bless you. But he was convinced of a lot of different things that were going to be happening. And frankly, none of them ever did. But he talked about, there, there, there's a scorpion creature that's described in the book of Revelation. And he said, well, that's actually what we used to call Huey helicopters. That's those helicopters with like the big bubble in front and they got the rotor in the top and the back. And he said that, because they're described as, as having the hair of a woman, right? In other words, long hair. And he said, well, actually, that's a Huey helicopter. And the hair of the woman is the vines that are hanging off of them because they would, they would um, camouflage them in the Vietnam War. <laughs> I see some of you like going, say what? Well, when you have information like that and you're an impressionable 14-year-old and you're really concerned about your friends and you start whipping that stuff out and they give you looks like what you just gave me, Right? But I had information that somebody else gave me that I didn't have before. And now, maybe now, they'll see all oh, the Bible is true because it's talking about Huey helicopters. This isn't how it works. Paul has been explaining that we need no extra insight or experience apart from knowing our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was told that even if someone were to rise from the dead, people wouldn't believe. 
Jesus told that story. Jesus, God the Son, rose from the dead, and there are still billions of people who don't believe him at all. Be aware of what's happening in your world around you, but don't be preoccupied with it, particularly in the sensationalism. There's one more. Now you know why I cut my message. Uh, Meism. I felt this was a little easier to deliver than religious anthropocentrism, which I couldn't even say just perfectly. Religious anthropocentrism, which is man-centered. Verse 18. What does the false teacher do? He delights in false humility. The idea here is that the false teacher enjoys displaying a false humbleness that he has created. Isn't that convenient? I'm being humble because I'm living the way I'm choosing to. Oddly enough, these pretend teachers considered angel worship to be an act of humility since they weren't attempting to worship their most powerful God directly. You see how that fits in? I'm being humble because I'm interacting with this lesser God. And so here is this teaching that says, yes, Jesus is a lesser God. He's done some wonderful things. And through what we can help you to experience and through self-denial, you can get to a greater plane. Verse 18 also says, Vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. See, Paul reveals here their true heart. They were self-centered. Let's be reminded that Peter calls false teachers arrogant and self-willed. They won't listen to anybody. Arrogance and sensationalism tend to go together. And not far behind that is the idea of asceticism, of giving things up to show your loyalty, to be devoted, whatever it might be. This may not always happen, but they are certainly traveling partners here, right? We've seen that several times in our text. So we can apply this, folks, to any man-centered philosophy that attempts to link itself with Christianity. If someone starts to beckon you to um, do these different things, one of the things you need to watch out for is, okay, what's their motives? What are they really out for? They might, they might talk to you about how, what they have seen, right? their experiences. But what is their standard of living? And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be them. It's going to be them. We, we talked about this a while back, and if you don't remember, I have no problem with that, but what benefit did Jesus' disciples have by going out and telling everybody about this risen Savior if he really didn't rise again? What, what was in it for them? There was no money. There was no fame. There, there was no, you know, everybody's going to follow me, Right? And in reality, everything they did was completely selfless. Right? They were constantly pointing people to Christ, not to themselves. The false teacher does the opposite. So years ago, I read a Christian book that was recommended to me. I'm not going to give you the title. I don't want to tempt you with it. It was definitely sensational. The story drew me in, and I read the whole thing. 
in like a day and a half, right? I, I was mesmerized by this story. It was, it was energetic and cool and, you know, all those different things. And you could identify with the characters, blah, blah, blah. But I vividly remember to this day what happened immediately after I finished the book. I asked myself, what did that do for me? Oh, really? What did that do for me? And I realized it had done nothing. It had not benefited me one iota. In the end, if there is any spiritual benefit to any of these things, is there any benefit to any of these things we looked at this morning? Is there any benefit to doing without simply because we're to do without? A man-made rule that we stack onto Scripture? Again, I'm talking about holy living. I'm talking about extra-biblical standards to live by. Is, Is there any benefit to having traditions just for tradition's sake? Is there any benefit to following these sensational ideas or visions or whatever it might be? Is is there something secret that God has not revealed to us that we have to find out by other means? And is there any benefit to following somebody who is all about self? That's the message of a false teacher. That's what they offer. And let's be reminded of what Paul states here emphatically. And they are not of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are bombarded by messages today, some of which are easy to look at and overlook. Others might take us a minute or two to maybe see what they're about. But Lord, there are times when a message from somebody else might hit us at a weak point in our lives. That's what the enemy does. We might be susceptible in different ways. Lord, there are those among us, and and we've all been there. We're either by our chronological age or our spiritual age, we're just not mature in some areas. We're susceptible. Lord, I pray that we would protect ourselves by taking refuge in who you are. It's not enough just to stand for the truth. We have to know the truth and do it. And so I pray, Lord, that as we explore this some more and Just see what these false teachers are all about. That just their practice, what they do, we can line that up with what you have given us to do. Lord, protect us. Protect us from what might be simply a distraction. Still takes us off of you. Or from something that could really be horrifically destructive to our spiritual walk. The goal is to take our eyes off of you. May we be alert. May we be sober. And may we help one another to stay focused on your great and glorious son.
And in Christ's name we pray, amen.